Hello and welcome to another edition of Lights, Camera, Sports. I'm your host, Mike Galtieri. So happy to have you on board. Well, we're in June and golf is in full swing. And we're lucky enough to be joined today by Jason Sobel, golf writer for ESPN.com. Jason, thanks so much for taking your time out of your day to join us here on the Lights, Camera, Sports podcast. Yeah, you got it, Mike. Happy to be, uh, be on with you. Well, Jason, you know, you have a long history of the game. I've long followed you. Uh, talk about, I know you grew up in Islip, New York. Uh, how was that? Did you always play golf from an early age? No, no. I mean, I was a big sports guy, but pretty much everything but golf when I was growing up as a kid. Uh, and once a year, I would go down to Florida and like to drive the golf cart with my grandfather. But other than that, I really didn't play much golf. I grew up playing yeah, soccer and basketball and baseball like most kids. And uh, I was more into other sports and I mean, as far as kind of how I got into this business, uh, uh, I, I had worked at a bunch of different newspapers, radio stations, uh, magazines, everything but really uh, TV. And I got a job at ESPN as a production assistant right out of college. I went to Brandeis uh, up in Massachusetts. And um, and so literally we're coming up on the 20-year anniversary. I started on June 23rd. 1997, literally started a few weeks after graduation. Wow. And I was a production assistant, uh, as you know, uh, working late nights and weekends and six days a week and holidays and all that good stuff. And uh, from there, I just kind of moved up a little bit on the TV side. And at some point, a job, and I'm going to give you the very Cliff Notes version of this, but a job became available as the golf editor. And I was a golf editor uh, of a section that really didn't at the time have a full-time golf writer. And so I wound up writing a lot. And that sort of took off more than the editor stuff, so I became a full-time writer, and uh, here we are. Uh, you know, 14 years later, uh, still doing the same job. Yeah, that's that's amazing, too. So I just want to backtrack. You went to Brandeis, and, you know, this, this majority of these podcasts are Boston College-focused, so you really were in the backyard of uh, BC. What years were you at Brandeis, in 93 to 97? Exactly, yeah, 93 to 97. I mean, I... I saw and did everything there was in Massachusetts. I loved it. That's where I cut my teeth. I worked for the Boston Globe, uh, Globe covering, uh, perhaps I was a hawk on the desk there. I was uh, working for the Middlesex News where I went. I mean, I, I would cover a hockey game on the Cape one night, and the next night I'd go do a basketball game in Worcester. I mean, I was all over the place, literally. And, uh, and then I was uh, producing afternoon shows with Eddie Edelman for uh, WEI uh, when uh, my, uh, I guess, his sophomore and junior years there um, in between all that stuff. So uh, I had some, some really understanding professors at, at uh, Brandeis. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. I, I, had, uh, I really wanted to break into, into the business, obviously, and I, I had applied for a job with the Boston Globe. And, and as you probably know, uh, Northeastern has a uh, co-op program where, yeah. uh, where guys go to school for five years and every other semester you work. You, you work a job, 40 to 60 hours a week, whatever it might be in your field, and, and you get some good experience. So I, I had applied for this job when I was at Brandeis, and uh, I went into the Boston Globe, and they, they brought me in for an interview, and I couldn't say no to an interview with the Boston Globe. I'm sitting there in the, the managing editor's uh, corner office, and I'm talking to them about this job, and uh, and what it entails, and he said, you know, this is great. I didn't realize Brandeis had a, a program like this, like Northeastern does. I said, well, yeah, actually, we don't. And he kind of looks at me and says, well, how would you be able to do this job? And I said, you know, I really can't, and I apologize. I've probably wasted your time, but I couldn't turn down an opportunity to come into the Boston Globe and interview here. And he said, you're into sports, aren't you? I said, yes, that's 
where my main focus is today. So stay here for a minute. And I mean, I'm sitting there shaking in this guy's office thinking he's getting security <laughs> to come pull me out of this place. And he brings the sports editor of the Boston Globe who walks into the office, says, we want to do like three days a week. And kinda, I, I looked at him and I don't think I said anything. I, I said, uh, uh, he goes, all right, why don't you do uh, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday? Uh, you know, come back on Tuesday. We'll have you in that. And, and I walked wow. out of there with a job at the Boston Globe working on the desk. It was amazing. I, you know, uh, you know, I always, I always tell uh, college kids and, and people looking to break into the business that story of just you might as well try everything because you never know what it might lead to. Uh, you know, a long-winded story to, to get back to just kind of how I got into this business and what I'm doing now. And who was who was the sports editor at the time of the Globe that that, that state? It was, Don, it was Don Squar, who wound up coming to ESPN afterwards. And, uh, and, and you know, I, I never got to know him too well, but I, I will never forget that day in uh, – in that office. That's a that's a great story. Great story. Um, so let's let's take it back to your early days covering golf. Now at ESPN, what, what what did you know about golf before you started that position? You know, pretty high profile position on ESPN.com. Yeah, I mean, I had gotten into it. I'd covered a handful of tournaments on the TV side as a producer, um, uh, three three U.S. Opens and a handful of other events. So uh, I got to know the game pretty well. I got to be not just a fan of the game, but playing the game as well. Certainly when I started as the golf editor, and we're talking uh, summer of 2004, I, I did not know nearly as much as I, I think I know now. And now I, now I know that I don't know very much, but at least then I <laughs> thought I knew something, and I definitely didn't. So, uh, like I said, I, I started as an editor of a site that really didn't have anyone writing for it. And by the third day on the job, I turned to one of my bosses and I said, look, we don't have any content coming in. I'm basically just pulling stuff off the wires and posting it to the page. I said, can I write something? And the, that week happened to be the British Open. And he said, yeah, go ahead. You know, worst thing that can happen is it's not that good. We don't let you write anymore. And I said, okay, cool. And I wrote something from thousands of miles away about Colin Montgomery and how he played that day. And the next day I, I turned to my boss again. I said, well, we don't have anything today either. Can I write something else? I said, yeah, sure. You didn't break the internet yesterday, so you might as well go for it. I wrote <laughs> something else. It just sort of took off from there. That's that's a great story. That's 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 amazing. It's funny how that works. Even at you know a big at that time, ESPN.com, but they were you know at golf. It just found you found a niche. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah. It really. I mean, it, it, it's been so many lucky breaks in my career. I you know I I'd like to say that. Uh, you work hard and you get those breaks, and you know certainly I have worked hard, but I, I've gotten just unbelievably lucky so many different times in my career that, that have led to this point. And then, what what made you go to the Golf Channel from ESPN? How was that transition going to a television network? Yeah, uh, it, it, it was just time for a change. I, I'd been at ESPN, like I said, since three weeks out of college graduation, and I'd been in Connecticut that entire time, and. Uh, just said, I want to try something new. I want to work for somebody else. I want to see what that's like. I moved out to Orlando in 2011, and I was with Golf Channel for four years. I uh, made a lot of good friends there, made a lot of good connections there. A lot of people I stay in touch with on a regular basis, and I see a lot of them when I go on the road to tournaments all the time. Um, but the, I got the opportunity two years ago to come back to ESPN, which uh, I was told and which I knew already that, almost never happens, especially at this level. Uh, you know, maybe behind the scenes, if you're a producer or if you're somebody that works sort of uh, 
uh, off air a little bit. Uh, you might be able to come back to ESPN at some point, but it's very infrequent that a writer or somebody that does any semblance of television would be able to leave ESPN on his own terms, then come back later on. So, uh, for some reason, again, one of those lucky breaks. For some reason, they wanted me back. I wanted to come back, and it all worked out. I've been back for, oh, about two years and, what, three months now, just before the Masters in 2015, and uh, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. It's, uh, it's been a great time. So, Jason, just tell us about what's your interest in your typical schedule. What's it like during the summer? Are you going weekend to weekend to all these tournaments? Throughout the, the... No, uh, no, I don't. I, I definitely do not go to every tournament. Uh, that would, uh, I, I would not be smiling and laughing right now if I if I had to go to every tournament. Um, <laughs> typical for me is atypical. I, I it's the best way I can put it. I, there is no typical. Um, I, I may wake up one day and not have any work to do, and by the end of the day, I still haven't had any work to do, and, and it's basically become a day off. I might wake up and have no work to do, and by the end of the day, I've written four columns already and done some TV. It just depends on how news breaks, what's going on in the world. Uh, I cover, well, I guess, about 22 to 24 events on the road each year and uh, certainly work a lot when I'm on the road. You know, Those are all 14, 15-hour days, getting up early and staying at the course late and writing columns and doing whatever other radio and podcast and TV and whatever else is asked of me, but... Um, yeah, when I'm home, there really is no typical day. Uh, today, I, I, for instance, I, I sat and wrote a uh, U.S. Open preview piece that's going to run next week, something I've done a lot of reporting on for uh, over the last couple of weeks and um, and was able to just about finish up. I'm probably about 95% done. So, uh, yeah, it's a matter of sitting down and finding the time and counting out 1,500 words and getting a story together. As you were speaking, I can only imagine what your Memorial Day Monday morning was like as that Tiger Woods story broke, how your day changed from that moment on. Yeah, I, I've had a few of these um, over the last few years, and I, I was not going to the Memorial. Of the three staffers that we have covering golf for ESPN, uh, I was the one that wasn't going to the Memorial Tournament this week or this year, so Bob Harrig and Michael Collins were already on their way there, were heading there the next day, and I, I was the one guy that was staying behind, and I, I was actually playing golf. Uh, playing a little uh, money game at my club on that Monday morning with a few buddies, and I'm uh, I'm on the 11th green. I'm just walking off the 11th green. I see my phone start to blow up, and I have all these text messages, and I start looking, and I see that Tiger Woods has been arrested. And I will tell you, the first thing, I, I yelled a couple of expletives because I knew it was going to ruin another one of my holidays, which he's done before in the past, but uh, I get up there and duck hook my next drive, and I'm barely even looking at it. I'm checking my phone. I'm calling my boss. I get up to my ball. I'm about 190 out, 200 out, and uh, I take a hybrid. I didn't even, I didn't even shoot it. I took a hybrid. I have no idea. You know, not even paying attention. Knock a hybrid to about 15 feet, and I'm still just checking my phone the whole time. I'm trying to make calls. I'm trying to send emails. I finally walk up to my putt. Don't even mark it. Don't barely even look at the line. Get up there and hit it, and I made it for birdie. And the guys are kind of congratulating me. I haven't even told the other guys in my group what's going on yet. And they're like, oh, wow, great birdie. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, 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 don't worry about it. I got, I got stuff going on. And uh, I wound up finishing up that round, but then racing off right in the column, driving down to Jupiter later that evening, and then reporting all day from the uh, Jupiter Police Department the next day uh, when we got the police record about Tiger. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's days like that that, 
don't make me feel guilty about the days where I don't wind up working very much because there are a lot of those days where you think you might have a nice day off and it turns out to be a day uh, uh, not just filled with work but a day that's uh, uh, become a very long one. But uh, that's part of the job. Yeah, you're right. And I'm interested to get your take. You're down there, Jupiter, Florida, on Tiger. Uh, just what's what's his mental psyche at right now? What do you what do you think from afar? What what's going on with him? And uh, obviously he blew it. Nothing, no alcohol involved. So what what's your just general take on Tiger Woods? I don't know. I I think it's too speculative to say uh, that there's any sweeping sort of you know. Hey, here's what we know about Tiger. I, I've heard people mention that you know they think he must have a problem. He needs to get help. I don't know that you can say that from one instance, one incident. Uh, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Um, what we do know is that something happened, something, something that was very dangerous happened. He was arrested also. I've had a lot of people criticize me personally and ESPN uh, in general for uh, covering Tiger Woods the way we have over the past week and a half and saying that it's too much and enough is enough and let the guy be and let the guy uh, be in private. We're, we're not poking into his personal life. This is a public record. He was arrested. And, and I think we have to cover that, and I think we have to uh, rely on the facts as opposed to making these suppositions and, uh, and speculating as to what might have happened and what could be happening in his personal life. But uh, certainly I think we can come to the conclusion that he's not in a very good place right now. Uh, I think we can just assume that, that coming off that fourth back surgery, and we're talking about just a few days after talking about how well he, he felt, you know, saying he felt better than he has in years. Uh, part of that police report, it was very, very detailed. I, I think the, uh, the the police department in Jupiter understood exactly who they were arresting and how much of a spotlight they would be under, and they did uh, really a thorough job on that police report. And part of it said uh, at one point Tiger Woods had an untied shoelace, which really is a minimal detail. No one really cares too much, but Here's a little part of it. The officer said, uh, would you like to, uh, to tie your shoe? Your shoe's untied. And Tiger said, I can't bend down that far to tie my shoe. Yeah. The officer said, would you like to put your foot up on the, on the fender of the car and try to tie it? He tried, and he really couldn't do it. And so that's why he wound up taking his shoes off. And in that video, if you've watched it, you'll see that Tiger has his shoes off and he's barefoot during that entire field sobriety test. And, and that's the reason for that. Um, so we're talking about three, four days after his website post, during which he said, I, I feel better than I have in years. Uh, I just don't know how we can buy it. And, you know, I, I think that there's certainly more going on with him than I think anybody even realizes or anybody understands. Do you, do you think he'll win another major? I don't even want to talk about Jack Nicholas, but do you think he'll win another major in in next 10 years or so? No, I really don't. Uh, and, and I think the biggest hurdle, everyone talks about, First of all, getting healthy. Absolutely. Number one, you have to get healthy. We all understand that. But once he gets healthy, he's got to find the swing again. Uh, you know, this is a guy who traditionally over the years, he doesn't get back to playing his best golf right away. This is a guy who needs some time to find his swing, needs to work with the coach, needs to figure things out. So that's going to take a little while. And then he's got to get back to not just putting up one good score, putting up four good scores in a row. And then, and, and this is what I think the biggest hurdle is, even if all of those things happen, you're telling me he's got to go out and beat Dustin Johnson and Jason Day and Rory McIlroy and Jordan Spieth and all these other really, really good players out there? I, I think that's the hardest part of this whole thing. I, I just can't imagine Tiger Woods coming back to the extent where at 41-plus, 
he's able to hang with all these young guys and, and not only hang with them, go out and beat them uh, in a major championship event. I, I just don't see it happening again. Well, let's now segue to the majors, what's going to be happening next week, and uh, that, that's at Aaron Hills. Uh, just give us the background on that course, the history of it. I find it very interesting how it's such a young course for such a traditionally U.S. Open. You think Wingfoot, you know, Shinnecock, even Brookline Country Club like that. It's amazing the transition that we're coming at this year. What, what can we expect from the course? Yeah, sort of carved out of nothingness in the middle of central Wisconsin. Uh, there seven years ago during the PGA Championship at Whistling Straits in 2010, I was able to uh, to go check out the course and played 18 holes there. And uh, I, I will tell you the same thing that Jordan Spieth told me a few weeks ago um, when I asked him what was memorable about Aaron Hills. He had played there in the 2011 U.S. Amateur. And he kind of looked at me and said, oh, you know, I really don't remember much about that. And if you read between the lines – that's sort of saying it's not a great golf course. Uh, I, I think that any time you play a great golf course, in part, it's memorable. You you know what the good holes are. You know what the the positive aspects of the golf course are and negative ones if you have it. If you go play Pebble Beach, you go play Torrey Pines, you go play Shinnecock, any of these great golf courses that have held U.S. Opens, you remember five years later, six years later, exactly uh, – what holes you liked, exactly what was good about the golf course. And for a guy like Jordan Spieth, who has a Loctite memory, who uh, really does remember uh, his rounds, remember courses really well, for him to not remember that much about a course he played a championship at, uh, I think says a lot about it. That said, it's going to be a big ballpark playing uh, nearly 7,700 yards on the scorecard. Uh, the rough is going to be tall and thick. You don't want to miss the fairways. The greens are going to be slick. It's a typical U.S. Open type setup. Do you think it's a par seventy-two, which I read the first time ever, par seventy-two? Do you think the even the winning score will be close to even par, minus two, minus three, or will it be more, uh, you know, minus eight, minus nine for the winning score here? No, no, I, it, we're not getting anywhere close to minus eight or minus nine. I, I think it's yeah. right around even par, if not over par. I think that the unfamiliarity of the golf course will. Uh, we'll keep those scores from getting too low. And uh, I, I really do think, though, that we won't see anything too far over par. And there's a reason for that, not just because uh, the golf course, uh, you know, will, will yield some low scores, but I, I think the USGA is very conscious of their image right now. And, and it's not very good in the eyes of the public, uh, especially coming off last year, what happened with Dustin Johnson, the entire fiasco of what they were going through during that round. Um, and, and some other things with the USGA that, that, that have occurred over the last few years. I think they're very weary of or, or very uh, conscious of what their image is right now. And I, I think they understand that we can't screw this one up. This is a brand new course that we're taking a major championship to. This is a, a tournament that we maybe get a little, get a little out of hand at, at a great course in Oakmont last year. Everything was terrific about Oakmont except – them sort of screwing up the final round and leaving DJ hanging in limbo for the entire afternoon. So other than that, they did a very good job with it. But I think they're conscious of the fact that they need to get this right and they need to have uh, a very good championship this uh, this coming week. Well, speaking of DJ, Dustin Johnson, uh, how was he feeling after the withdrawal of the Masters at Augusta? Oh, he's fine. I spent some time with him at the AT&T Byron Nelson a few weeks ago and 
he's completely over that. He, he's maybe uh, not played his best golf since then. He missed the cut uh, at the Memorial last week. But, uh, no, he, he's a guy that has a very short memory when it comes to these things. He's not hurting at all. Uh, missing a cut doesn't mean a whole lot to him because I think he's probably forgotten about it and gone on to Aaron Hills and gotten some practice in already. So, no, I, I wouldn't think that any of that is bothering him still at all. And then Phil Mickelson, will will I find I still part of me wants to believe he'll still play. I know he, he announced last week he's going to attend his daughter's graduation. She's a speaker there. Uh, first of all, I can't believe I remember the 1999. I think I saw your tweet how quickly that's gone. She's graduating high school. But do you think there's still an outside chance Phil will play U.S. Open? I I think there's an outside chance. I, I don't know what would it, what it would take. Uh, I I haven't been around Phil. I, like I said, I wasn't at the memorial when this news broke, but. Speaking to people who have spoken to Phil Mickelson, it sounds like he is uh, he is going to to indeed skip the U.S. Open. It sounds like he's got some other family stuff going on this coming week, and um, he's pretty much made up his mind now. He, he's left it open. It's a uh, it's a noon Central Time graduation on Thursday, which means 10 a.m. on the West Coast. His key time is 2:20 Central Time. It means Oh, just under two and a half hours after the commencement starts, yeah. he would have to tee off in Wisconsin. That's tough. Obviously, obviously, he's not going to be able to do that. But if there's some sort of weather delay, a three-hour weather delay on Thursday morning that pushes back all the tee times, he's, I believe, in the third to last tee time of the day, can he get there and actually tee off? Yeah, there's a possibility. And, and if you want to throw more, more fuel on that fire, uh, there's the fact that he's uh, sending Bones, his caddy, out to Aaron Hills to at least scout the course and see what's out there and at least be prepared if indeed Phil can make it in time and go play. But I, like I said, I, I don't put that at a very high percentage chance. I, I think that he is indeed out next week. Okay, last couple questions here on the U.S. Open. Who, who's your winner and who's a sneaky guy that we could watch? We don't really might not expect to win who might have a good week. You're the first person who's asked me for a winner. Usually – this stuff happens weeks in advance. I'm getting a ton of people, especially with the popularity of fantasy and DFS these days. I get people all the time asking me for winners. You're honestly the first person that's asked me for a winner, and I'm not sure I have a good answer for you yet. I, I, I'm leaning towards Dustin Johnson. I hate to go. It feels very chalky uh, to go with the guy. But after the conversation that I had with him a few weeks ago, I, I asked him a question about where he would have ranked the U.S. Open uh, amongst the four majors uh, to be his first one that, that he would check off that list. And he said he would have ranked it right near the top because he likes playing hard golf course. So I said, you bring a lot of offense to the course. You, you don't seem like a guy that's a, a defense wins championships type of guy. And he said, no, no, people think that just because I hit the ball a long way means that uh, I just make a lot of birdies and I play aggressively. I actually play very conservative golf. I just tend to make birdies because I hit it a long way. So I actually like the way the U.S. Open sets up. Boy, I, he really got me thinking that I, I like him a lot for Aaron Hill. So uh, as my first uh, even swing at it right now, uh, I think I'm looking at Dustin Johnson. For the dark horse, boy, who, who's played well so far? You know what? Kevin Kisner won a few weeks ago. I, I think Kevin Kisner is sort of made for a major championship, and, and it might be a U.S. Open type where – he can go grind it out. He's one of the grittiest kind of players out there. Uh, maybe that's a little bit of a cliche, but uh, I love how intense he gets out on the golf course, especially down the stretch. And I think he's a guy that I liked him a lot at Augusta. Didn't play that well there, but 
but I like him a lot going into this one as well. Well, there you go. You know, it, it, one thing for certain, it's going to be a fun week. It always is. The U.S. Open, one of the best golf weeks of, of the year. And then, you know, being a New England sports podcast, we, the golf world, uh, how it's been the last couple of years, transitions to Connecticut the week after the U.S. Open in Cromwell. A big announcement by Nathan Groove today. Uh, Jordan Smith is going to compete at the Travelers. Just talk about uh, how the Travelers has benefited the last 10 years as a sponsor and uh, how that tournament's perceived on tour. I'm so happy for those guys. I, look, I, I know I'm supposed to remain unbiased at and, and, and for the most part, I do. But I, I lived in Connecticut for a long time. I've gotten to know Andy Bissett from Travelers and Nathan, as you mentioned, the tournament director, and so many other great people of the Travelers Championship. I've gotten to know them so well over the years, and I'm just so happy for them. I mean, people who are listening to this right now probably remember it, it was 10 years ago when the tournament looked like it was gone. The tournament was yeah was out of the rotation. It was going to turn into maybe at some point a Champions Tour event, but... It was done. The GHO, as it had been known for so many years, was out. They didn't have a sponsor. Travelers came in at the 11th hour, saved the event, and now look, it's going to have a great field. It's going to, uh, it's going to be the toast of the town in Hartford, which I think always supports the tournament really, really well. I'm just ecstatic. I go there every year. I can't wait to get back again this year. I sent Nathan Group a text this morning. I said, "Hey, look, I understand the media crush you're going to have with all these great stars here this year." Uh, I just wanted to know if I still have a seat in the media center because uh, I figured you'd kick me out. You'd have all these other people. I said, no, no, don't worry. We'll find a place for you in the corner. We can we can squeeze you in somewhere. <laughs> she was kidding, I think. But, uh, no, I, like I said, I, I am just so happy for not only all the people with the tournament who do such a good job. I, I think they provide a, a better atmosphere for the players, fans, media, volunteers, everybody uh, than maybe any other tournament out there. But then the fans as well. I'm just so happy the people in Connecticut who got screwed with their hockey team years ago, got screwed when uh, Robert Kraft, who, you know, and I love the Patriots, but they got screwed when uh, they pulled the Patriots back to Foxborough years ago. And now they have a big-time event in Hartford where – they get to go and see some of the best golfers in the entire world. I, I think it's awesome. And then on the, the player side, what do the players think of the TPC River Highlands? There's been some recent improvements last couple of years. They Obviously, the practice facility is well-regarded, brand new. Uh, just what's the general take on the PGA Tour for the TPC River Highlands? They love it. Uh, every year it seems like uh, like players will come up to me and go, man, this place is awesome. Like Players who haven't played it before are genuinely surprised at how much they like the golf course, and even more so than the golf course, just the way they're treated for the whole week. They're treated very well. Um, I think they really enjoy sort of just being out there. It's just it's a nice, fun week, especially for those guys who play in the U.S. Open and go from the grind of 72 holes of uh, U.S. Open golf that's so difficult to coming out to Hartford enjoying uh, maybe, you know, an easier golf course. And, you know, certainly it's not easy, but at least easier compared to a U.S. Open venue. Um, and, and having a little bit more relaxation on the golf course, being able to go out there and make some birdies. So I, I really do think it's one of the favorites of, of the players out there. Yeah, it just seems like it's easier, too. It's easy to get to in the, in the Marriott Hotel. A lot of them stay in Hartford. Uh, it just seems like it's a very logistically, the fans park right near the course. Uh, which is rare on the tour. So it's just, you're right. It seems coming out the USO, but it's just kind of like a, a, you know, like a breezy, nice tournament to to rebound with. Yeah, it is. It is. I I actually sent uh, Michael Greller, Jordan Spieth's caddy, a a text message earlier today, and I said, 
man, I don't think you've ever been to Hartford before, but I know you're going to love it. It, it is right up your alley. You're just going to have such a great, great time with all the fans there and all the good restaurants in Hartford and all the cool stuff they've got going on. It's, it, it's a really good vibe, and this year it's going to be the best vibe they've ever had there. I mean, yeah, you're right. We've got to give credit to Nathan Grube, uh you know, obviously Jay Fishman who passed away last year, but Andy Bissett as well. Uh, what they've done, you're right, from 10 years to now has just been truly, truly impressive as the purse has continued to grow as well. Yeah, and, and like I said, I, I'm just happy for those guys. And, and down the line, I, I, I don't want to talk it up to, uh, because they deflect credit every time you talk about those guys. So I don't want to just credit the guys at the top either. They have so many people working for them and with them that do such a great job uh, as well. They, they, you know, from having the media, I'll, I'll give you one example. They have a, a, a media dinner on Tuesday night of Masters Week every year where Andy and Nathan and a bunch of the, uh, the other Travelers folks come down and, and put on a dinner for 30 or 40 media folks and, you know, drinks and food and great conversation and, uh, they usually bring in the defending champion, and no other tournament, first of all, does that, first of all. Secondly, they might not do that for people that have no intention of coming to their event. I, I have a whole lot of friends in the media who say, you know, look, I, I, I'm i never going to cover this event. You know, a guy who lives in Chicago and writes for the Chicago Tribune is going to say, I, I, look, I, I appreciate dinner. I appreciate them reaching out to me, but I feel guilty because there's no way I'm ever going to cover an event in Hartford, Connecticut. And Andy and Nathan, their attitude is, so what? So just come and join us and get to know us. And if at some point we can ever do anything for you, that'd be great. And I just love that attitude. That just epitomizes everything they stand for, uh, that attitude that um, they just want everyone to be a part of it. They want to be inclusionary and, and they want to grow their tournament uh, the right way. And I, I think that uh, they're being rewarded for all that this year. Yeah, no question about it. So that should be a fun week right after the U.S. Open. It's a nice swing, uh, these next two tournaments. Uh, Jason, last couple questions here I have. Thanks again for taking the time to join us here on the Lights, Camera, Sports podcast. But who is your favorite caddy on tour Who's that you've got to know? Uh, I know there's a lot of characters out there. Yeah, I, favorite, is, favorite is so tough because, um, boy, I, I mean, I, I'm friends with a lot of them. I, you know, Christian Donald. Um, is not necessarily a character, but he's the kind of guy I would want on my bag. He's Brandon Steele's caddy. He is as smart as they come. He's a good player. He understands the game. Steve Catlin, who caddies for Robert Streb, great guy. Uh, Bones, you can sit and have a conversation with Bones for hours, and, uh, and he's terrific as well. I've got a quick Bones story. This was boy, about seven, eight years ago. I was at Quail Hollow uh, for that event. I actually walked a few holes with uh, Phil during the Pro-Am on Wednesday afternoon. It was about 95 degrees out. I had forgotten to get a hat that week. So after I was done for the day, I went to a nearby mall. And I'm walking into uh, the sports store in the mall, and, and I'm looking for a hat, and I run into Bones. And Bones has a bag of keys in his hand. And I look at him, I go, what are you doing? And he says, oh, well, there's a certain kind of tea that Phil likes, so I wanted to go pick up a bunch so we'd be prepared for the week. And, and he said it so matter-of-factly, like it wasn't a big deal, and I kind of shook my head and go, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then I walk away and I go, if Phil Mickelson wanted, he could have a thousand teas waiting for him in his locker every single week. The fact that Bones goes to buy some teas at a local mall, I think speaks volumes about how seriously he takes his job and, and the fact that, look, I, I'm just another caddy out there just trying to go the extra mile and do my job. I, I, I respected him 
before that a lot, and I respect him even more so after uh, after I witnessed that story. Yeah, that's a good story. That's a good behind the scenes. You're right, and you, they come across that way on TV as well, both Phil and Bones. Yeah, yeah, and Phil. I mean, I there's maybe nobody else on tour that I'd rather sit and have a conversation with for an hour. And, and, and I'm not talking about you can make it on the record and hey, let's talk about some stories that I'm working on. And he's terrific. Or you can talk off the record and hey, let's just you know have some laughs and and talk a little bit and have some fun. He is the best when it comes to any of that stuff. He, he really, really is. My personal favorite caddy is Jelly. I know him from CBS Sports. He used to be a caddy for Tim Petrovic. Great, funny guy. He's been on the tour forever. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I know him. I, I wrote a story years ago about uh, Tim and his brother. Tim, obviously, a Hartford, uh, yes. University of Hartford guy, and, and his brother caddied for him in New Orleans one year. And I think I did a story on that. His brother had been sick at one point. Uh, I just did a story on... The Petrovic brothers uh, growing up and you know, how golf kind of fit into their lives. That, that's awesome. That's awesome. And last question, we have you here. Uh, your favorite golf tournament that you've ever attended? Uh, most exciting, most memorable one? Yeah, I've got to go with really the first one. I, I, maybe, maybe it was the second one. I'd done a few uh, for TV, um, like I said, before I got into this role. And I think I'd done... A, an old Buick Challenge in there, something like that, a couple others, little ones. But the first major I ever covered um, for ESPN was the 2000 U.S. Open. And uh, you already remember some guy won by 15 shots that week. And just <laughs> be around that and be in that atmosphere. I'm, I'm the same age as Tiger Woods and kind of feel like I grew up sort of understanding him a little bit, at least back then, where, you know, it's kind of cool you're in college and, hey, there's this phenom golfer who's the same age who's going to go out there and beat all these other guys and uh, i just thought that was pretty cool and and to be 20 oh what was like 24 years old at that point and be at the 2000 us open watching a guy my age win by 15 shots over ernie ells and go on hell and I, I just thought that was really really fun to say and i think that of course that tournament was at pebble beach i think that was the height of tiger really at least that first wave where he just you know was amazing that stretch in 99 2000 yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could go through, you can sit and argue what his best major was. 97 Masters had so many uh, socioeconomic impacts and, uh, you know, did so much for building the sport of golf around the world. The 2000 U.S. Open was just uh, a stripe show. The 2008 U.S. Open at Torrey Pines uh, really showed his grit and determination. He's out there playing on a broken leg and torn ACL and goes out and wins that golf tournament. So uh, you can pick any one of those three, and they're all great choices. Well, Jason, we, you're a great guy coming on our podcast. Thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it. Learned a lot about yourself and uh, the upcoming U.S. Open, the Travelers Championship. It's been a lot of fun to catch up and talk some golf. You guys, that's like, I appreciate you having me on.